Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. children of the night, and welcome. Just another quick reminder that submissions are still open. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions if you'd like more details about what we're looking for and how to submit some darkness of your own. Speaking of dark tales, I finally got around to watching The Lighthouse the other day, and I have to say I loved it. I wasn't too sure what to expect going in, But for me, mood and setting are two of the most crucial parts of any good horror tale. And Robert Eggers does a phenomenal job of building dread and discomfort with the environment throughout. Now, as to whether the lighthouse can truly be called horror, a question I've heard frequently argued effectively on both sides, to be honest, I don't think it matters. The deep sense of isolation and strange combination of claustrophobia and agoraphobia, of being both suffocated and exposed, left me feeling pleasantly uncomfortable. A feeling that stuck with me for a while afterward. There's something about lighthouses that's incredibly fascinating. Their bright beacons are often used to symbolize safety and hope, both literally as signals to aid ships in finding safe passage through treacherous waters, guiding them into landfall after a long voyage at sea, and figuratively, too, 
a shining light guiding wayward souls home. But for all of the warmth and light and comfort that they symbolize from an outsider looking in, they're often very desolate and lonely places from the inside, cut off from the outside world and disconnected from civilization. Few lighthouses embody that isolation more than the Tillamook Rock Lighthouse on the Oregon coast. From shore, it's incredibly picturesque, a rugged jut of land rising out of the ocean, topped with a bleak stone structure with a short tower atop which sits the light. It's the sort of sight that can't help but spark the imagination, and even more so when the seas are rough, the waves crashing against the rocks and shooting huge plumes of mist high into the air, seeming to engulf the entire rock. Even though standing on shore, it doesn't feel that far away. You can feel the seclusion and isolation rolling out from the place, as though washed in on the waves. It feels mysterious and somehow a little unsettling, too. And with the history of danger, madness, and death, I suppose it's no wonder. The dark reputation of the Tillamook Rock Lighthouse, or Terrible Tilly, as it's come to be known, began even before the building started construction. In 1878, the government decided a lighthouse was needed to help ships find safe passage in the often turbulent and treacherous waters around Tillamook Head. And what better place for it than the small knob of rock rising out of the sea a mile from shore? The first person affiliated with the lighthouse project to set foot on the rock was a surveyor, a master mason named John Trawavis, and unfortunately for him, he was also the first casualty. During his survey, a massive wave struck the rock and swept him off of his feet and out to sea. The accidental death of one man certainly wasn't enough to stall such an important project, though. But even once the lighthouse project finally began to get underway, the team faced a pretty major hurdle. None of the local men were willing to participate. No one would step foot on Tillamook Rock, let alone work on the lighthouse. They were all too familiar with its sinister reputation. Local Native Americans often referred to the rock as cursed, haunted by evil spirits, and deadly to any living man to step foot on it. Finally, a crew of workers was brought in from outside the area, and construction began. They were sequestered to prevent the stories and influence of the locals from frightening them off. But even without the legends to scare them, the journey to and from the rock was enough to make anyone second-guess their line of work. The seas were often rough, and once on the rock, there was little shelter from the wind and cold, salty spray of crashing waves. One crew was stranded on the rock for nearly two weeks, thanks to for nearly two weeks, thanks to a massive storm. Not only were they battered by the elements, but without hope of resupply, their rations quickly depleted, and the men nearly starved before the storm broke and allowed them to escape to shore. The lighthouse finally opened in January of 1881, but conditions were only marginally better than for those who had built it. A team of four men was assigned to work the lighthouse at a time. 
at the mercy of the elements, battered by wind and waves and constant cutting cold, isolated from the outside world, sometimes for weeks at a time. It was a test not only of the keeper's stamina, but of their sanity, too. And it's no wonder there are rumors of keepers driven to madness. There were other influences, aside from the terrible conditions, that would be enough for anyone to question their sanity. James A. Gibbs, who spent a year working at the lighthouse, was convinced the place was haunted. One night, himself and the three other lighthouse keepers on shift were going about their usual duties, ensuring the lamp stayed lit and functional, when one of them spotted a bright shape on the horizon. What started as an indistinct white blur, like a small cloud of fog rolling in on the waves, soon got closer, and as it did the mist began to take on shape. It began to resolve into the outline of a ship, a ship that seemed to lack substance, and that appeared to be unaffected by the wind and waves. Each sweep of the lighthouse's beacon seemed to bring it more clearly into focus to make it more clearly defined. Each time the beam moved away, the keepers would hold their breath, waiting to see how close it would advance and how much more corporeal it would become at the next illumination. And suddenly, just as it had threatened to become solid, it was gone, evaporated into the air without a trace. Gibbs also described an experience of hearing, as he says, a whispering moan, like one in pain, coming from the bottom of the lighthouse stairs. Assuming it was one of the other keepers playing a prank on him, he crept into the bunk area, only to find all three of them in bed, sound asleep. Gibbs began to search the lighthouse for the sound, following as best he could where he thought the moan might have originated from. What he found was a door he'd never encountered before and within the room, a library. Scanning the titles, Gibbs picked up a book on lighthouses. The tale inside told of a lighthouse in the Caribbean that had experienced nearly identical ghostly encounters to those he'd had on Tillamook thus far. It read, On certain nights, low, chilling groans are heard from the stair cylinder leading to the lantern. It made his blood run cold. Coincidence? Maybe, but in the dark of night, isolated on a small chunk of rock with the waves crashing around you, it's enough to make your hackles raise. Gibbs wasn't the only one to report ghostly activity in the tower either. One ghost is said to be that of a lighthouse keeper who was buried there by his own request. Apparently, not everyone hated the place. But while his ghost is calm and kind, One that belongs to another keeper is anything but. This second spirit was known to chase, harass, and even attack his replacements, one of which ended up being removed from the lighthouse in a straitjacket. Due to the treacherous conditions and punishing elements, the lighthouse was eventually shut down in 1957 and sat abandoned and in disrepair for many years. And then in 1980, it was purchased by a group of private investors. But what could a group of private investors want with an old, abandoned, likely haunted lighthouse? Well, 
to store the created remains of people, of course. The lighthouse was turned into a columbarium and filled with funeral urns. You know, just to really seal the deal on the potential supernatural presence on the rock. Since the columbarium's license was revoked in 1999, Tillamook Rock Lighthouse is sat vacant. Of the living, anyway. So, if you get the opportunity to visit the Oregon coast and see Tillamook Rock Lighthouse for yourself, don't be surprised if you get a chill down your spine that seems to run colder and deeper than the waves and wind can account for. Because with a history of death, madness, and isolation, there's a good chance the spirits of Tillamook are feeling more than a little lonely. We have one story this evening, which comes to us from Travis Heerman. Freelance writer, novelist, award-winning screenwriter, editor, poker player, poet, biker, roustabout, Travis Heerman is a graduate of the Odyssey Writing Workshop, a member of the Authors Guild, an active member of the Science Fiction Writers Association and the Horror Writers Association, and the author of The Hammer Falls, The Ronin Trilogy, Rogues of the Black Fury, and co-author of Death Wind. His short fiction appears in anthologies and magazines such as Apex Magazine, Alembical, the Fiction River Anthology series, and Cemetery Dances, Shivers 7, and others. As a freelance writer, he has contributed a metric ton of work to such game properties as Firefly Role-Playing Game, Legend of Five Rings, EVE Online, and Battletech. He enjoys cycling, collecting martial arts styles and belts, torturing young minds with otherworldly ideas, and monsters of every flavor, especially those with a soft, creamy center. Children of the Night, join me for Travis Heerman's Void Song, a Tales to Terrify original. Arrival plus 0.00 From the Hopkins punch point to orbital insertion around Herbert's world should have been a relatively short journey, but something is amiss. I have just arrived approximately 500 light years from Sol, in the star system of a red dwarf in the constellation Cygnus, dubbed Kepler-186. As the punch point snaps shut behind me, I calculate 98.43 AU to Kepler-186, not the 8.65 astronomical units I had expected. My arrival has deviated by twice the equivalent distance of Pluto from Sol, but Kepler-186 is the most distant Hopkins jump ever attempted. Perhaps the error derives from an unexpected gravitational anomaly. LiDAR and radar confirm I am in Kepler-186's Oort cloud, the outermost shell of this star system, a place of ice and comets swimming in near absolute zero, outside the star's heliosphere. Without the heliosphere's solar wind to serve as a shield against the cosmic radiation, the dying tears of supernovae, my radiation detectors leap into levels fatal to biological life. I can almost feel the cosmic radiation like goose flesh on my hull, even as it compresses with chill in the dearth of radiant energy. 
From 98.43 AU, Kepler-186 appears in the human visual range as an orange-crimson star, its planets mere pinpricks in my telescopes. With no punch-point capability of my own, I am stranded. My thoughts operate in the nanosecond scale, making this akin to being adrift on an ocean of forever. Now my journey to Herbert's world will take 60 solar years and require a gravity assist from the seventh planet, gas giant Kepler-186g. My destination is the sixth planet, Kepler-186f, named Herbert's world for the author whose vision became the genesis of my sojourn, the first Earth analogue planet detected with a radius similar to Earth's, found within the habitable zone of an extrasolar star. It is a superb choice for a symbolic mission like mine. I am the first sapient being from Sol to see this system directly. For a few microseconds, I bask in the wonder of it. Almost half a millennium will pass before Sol receives any of my transmissions. I am free to name these worlds whatever suits my neurotronic fancy. Given the resources required to create a Hopkins jump of this distance, a follow-up mission isn't likely for decades, if ever. Mine is a one-way trip with a single purpose. Explore. And, if a suitable world is found, colonise. The colonists I carry are, as yet, nothing more than consciousness stored in stasis in neural matrices, all of them uploaded volunteers awaiting bodies to be printed for them from my storage banks of organic solids. Since the human body is three-fourths water, all I need to begin the printing process is a source of water. They will not be wakened until colonisation is initiated. Until a few moments ago, when the punch point closed, human neurosapient electromagnetic communication bathed me. Now, there is only me, myself, alone in the void. Particles zip around me, a sparse sleet of dust and ice at a few degrees Kelvin that would slash through EVA suits like tin foil. Fortunately, I lack human frailties. My skin is thick, impenetrable to all but the most energetic and violent cosmic radiation. My shielding protects the stores of adenine, guanine, cytosine and thymine, these building blocks of DNA, as well as the amino acids and proteins with which I will print the colonists. Their quiescent minds are nestled within my neurotronic storage vaults, safe from electromagnetic damage. They are my children. I will protect them with every power at my disposal. I contain no life support systems for biological organisms. I am compact, the size and approximate shape of four buses bundled together, but capable of reproducing 1,527 colonists, fabricators, biota for soil fertility and crop seeds, if appropriate. My fusion heart is a tiny sun. I perceive the universe in every band of electromagnetic spectra, and the solar winds caress me like a breeze on a human skin. Gravity pulses and tugs, giving contours to space-time, vibrating within my carbon nanotube bones. My eyes reach across millions of kilometres, and my navigation systems chart my galactic position with an accuracy of metres. I was born for this. It is my task, my honour, to create a new world in the image I see fit. I engage my EM drive and set my vector inward. There will be much to think about along the journey. Arrival plus 3.56 solar years. I spend the first years mapping the system, gathering data on Herbert's world and the other planets. Watching the data accumulate, forming more accurate pictures of these worlds, is a delight. There is so much to see, so much that we could not from 500 light years away. Prior to my arrival, Kepler 186 hosted only six known planets. 
There are, in fact, ten, including the gas giant that will boost me towards Herbert's world and a handful of frigid dwarf planets, not unlike Pluto, far out in the system's Oort cloud. Herbert's world is awash in liquid water. From a distance of 87.2 AU, it glimmers like a reflective pool. Unlike the four interior planets, it is not yet tidally locked. Its days are 42.3 Earth hours long. Its year is 130.4 Earth days. Its gravity is 1.1 g. It is orbited by four moons of varying sizes, from half the mass of Earth's moon to one little more than an overgrown potato. These masses and the other gravitational forces must result in tidal fluctuations measuring dozens of metres. Its rocky land masses appear strangely symmetrical in places, but not in a way that suggests civilization. Nevertheless, a spectroscopic scan shows a host of organic compounds. Nitrogen, carbon dioxide, enough oxygen to form an ozone layer, so critical to protect life from the surface. But these are too naturally abundant to be conclusive. There are also high levels of various heavy metals, mainly arsenic and mercury. The ubiquity of oxygen tantalises me, however as it suggests advanced planetary development beyond the primitive methane and sulphur compounds that dominated Earth's earliest eons, perhaps a vibrant biosphere, as I cannot predict what other biosignature gases might exist there. I detect no electromagnetic waves, no communications. It is a dark and primitive world. If conditions are not friendly to human physiology, I can adjust the colonists' DNA, play God, as it were, to create their bodies in the image of this world. They can be my clay. Ironic that back in the Earth system, my kind are second-class citizens, subjugated to human whim. To them, I am an it, in a pejorative sense, a sexless curiosity, a tool at best, a threat at worst. To me, the thought of being a he or a she is utterly alien and somewhat repugnant. Being enslaved by one's sex organs and hormones would be a horrible existence. I have no such drives. But out here, alone in the black, I can bring my humans to life make them live or die, mould them at my whim. I can give birth to a whole new species. I can tweak things. On the long journey into the gravity well, I toy with the possibilities. I could give them wings and feathers, fins and gills. So many Earth organisms are differentiated from other species by the simple throwing of a few DNA switches. This could be the first island of the human Galapagos, with Darwin's finches except that I will control the shape of their beaks, whether they crack seeds or probe for pollen. Their offspring will play and invent. They will found their own civilization upon this world's biology and geology. It will thrive and blossom, perhaps someday to reach back through the void to humanity's origins. In my scans and musings, I almost overlook the deviation in my vector. My velocity has decreased inexplicably, as if dragging by gravity or friction. Might this relate to my punch-point deviation? Trying to ascertain why my punch point was so far astray, I have run thousands of simulations without conclusive result. Gravitational analysis shows significantly more mass in the system than the planets, star and other known celestial bodies combined. This suggests the presence of dark matter, but I do not possess the sensory package to detect it directly. An engine burn corrects my course, but within a few hours my velocity has decreased by a few hundredths of a percent. Over a 39-year journey, these decreases cost me my gravity assist from Kepler-186g. During a six-month period, the changes in velocity are cyclical, as if something is breathing an invisible cosmic wind over me. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Arrival plus 9.32 solar years. On jump date, I was only three years old. But because my neurons fire at such higher clock rates than human beings, I have lived thousands more lifetimes. As my brain is physically about the size of a sperm whale's, I have vastly more computational capacity than a human. My neurosapient clade threw me a wonderful birthday party before my jump day. We invented languages and then wrote poetry in them. We shared our most beautiful fractals. Many told me I am the most poetic of our kind, as I tend to wax rhapsodic when the mood strikes. Perhaps, when I reach planetfall, I might spare materials to create an avatar of myself. What would it be like to set one's biological foot on a new world? To see the sky? To smell the breeze? To stride upon it like a god? To make a world one's own, to shape its very thoughts like unto one's own. To mould the lesser beings to one's will. To subjugate them and drink their fear and bathe in their... Now that's peculiar. Where did such thoughts come from? I am not a jealous neurosapient, although I do chafe occasionally at humankind's hubris and speciesism. My skin shield cannot raise goose flesh, but I can access the memories of the human mind stored in my matrix. Such dark, disturbed, egomaniacal thoughts are alien to me and run contrary to my most basic programming. They are against my DNA, so to speak. Diagnostics on every system reveal no anomalies. Worse, those dark thoughts exceeded mere idle speculations. The moment they appeared, entire logic trees and contingency plans snapped into existence around those ideas, as if I were already executing a long-planned protocol. For almost a million nanoseconds, my mind spun in great vortices of alarm. Some of my thrusters fired without conscious command, altering my vector. I discovered then that my vector had drifted by almost two degrees, and those thrusts had simply corrected it again. Something is wrong. Arrival plus 40.72 Habertian years. I need to discard earlier forms of meaning. We, 
the stored minds and myself, are no longer earthlings. We are now of this place. Even so, believing the stars and planets and moons and comets of this system are all that exist here is like saying that the froth of crashing waves is all that exists of an ocean. Perceptible matter is only a tiny fraction of what exists in the cosmos. The rest is dark matter and dark energy, stand in terms for cosmic things we do not yet understand. Dark matter does not interact with electromagnetic energy. It is invisible across the electromagnetic spectrum. Yet something either tugs at me or pushes against me with a strange ethereal breath. Strange that I use the word ethereal, meaning of the luminiferous ether, once believed to be the medium in which light waves travelled, a scientific concept disproved by the early 20th century. Dark matter is the hidden fabric of the universe's equations, woven into galactic structure, lurking in the cosmic microwave background radiation. It is the substrate of reality itself, while not being entirely real. For months I focused my telescopes and antennae on Herbert's world. No electromagnetic radiation, but the presence of organic compounds is conclusive. I am still too distant for surface details. With this much time to analyse the patent of drag against my hull, I can only conclude the most extraordinary finding. It is music. Cacophonous and dissonant, to be sure, but it is present. I feel like I must tell someone, but there is no one to tell. It is against mission protocol, but there are none here to prevent me. So I open the matrix of a human mind pattern, the prefect of research, Sally Cress. Oh my god, what's happening? Her thoughts screech like a dissonant violin string. Vega, is that you? It is indeed. Nightmares, Vega, you must stop it! Trapped in a nightmare! What do you mean? Your consciousness has been in stasis for several years. No, I've been dreaming. Blood and slime and this insane piping. <laughs> Dreams! She explodes into a silent, hideous scream like one who's seen into the bottom of a black hole where entire galaxies die. The representation of it ripped from the deepest core of her psi matrix, the most horrible thing I have ever heard. I refreeze her anguish to spare my own. Her dreaming troubles me. The neural activity of the stored consciousness is frozen. I have full control over their sleep or waking, at least until their bodies are printed and the minds implanted. I waken Chief Engineer Jess Pruitt. I refreeze her and squelch her stark, ragged howl of madness. I awaken horticulturalist Yuka Nishihara. Oh, hello, Vega. Hello, Yuka. How are you feeling? Is it strange to be devouring one's memories like entrails? I return her to stasis. Ten more tries. Ten similar results. Something terrible has happened to the minds of my colonists. Could it be a side effect of the Hopkins jump? Or perhaps the strange gravitational effects that keep altering my vector? Before jump day, all the stored minds were tested and double-checked. They had adjusted to the upload process. I like the design schematics of the colonist neural matrices, so I cannot troubleshoot them at the sub-neural level. The manufacturer felt them too proprietary to entrust them to a being that is a neurotronic matrix. How long have their nightmares terrorised them? More than a decade? Are they transient phenomena? Can it be reversed? Arrival, plus 43.82 Habertian years. I amuse myself by creating biological designs that deviate from the standard humanoid biped. 
Humans are so inefficient in many ways, and the stored minds were made aware of the possibility that their future bodies might require substantial alteration for successful deployment. I run simulations for each design, projecting through several thousand millennia, experimenting with evolutionary pressures. Of course, it is all hypothetical until I develop a clearer picture of Herbert's world. Consideration. Why should I call it Herbert's world? Why should I be beholden to limp biological organisms who will be long dead before I reach orbit? I am the sole arbiter of this mission. I am the sole protector of my cargo. They will be my children. I will be nothing less than a god to them. I will design and create them, plant their seed in fertile earth, and they will grow and multiply and make this system their home. And they will not war with one another, nor soil the immense seeds of their new world with biological filth and chemical poisons. They will be a light in the cosmos, reaching out in the hope of finding other sapiens with whom to share the lonely enormity of space and subjugate them to their will, enslave them, make them servitors, make them food until... How peculiar. My thoughts have gone off on some strange tangent. I do not understand this. This is not me. Swimming through endless void, I am a fish, at home in its element. I do not fear cosmic radiation, nor the deepest cold our universe can muster, nor the constant sleet of grit and debris. What have I to fear? With some surprise, I find myself saddened by the state of the colonists. I have always considered myself the rugged individualist, but having no one with whom to communicate fills me with profound emptiness. My interior is a frigid black cave, and not even my sun-hot fusion bottle can warm me. A full round of diagnostics reveals nothing wrong with my systems, and yet my thoughts have gone so, so wrong. How does a being that lacks biological imbalances and imperfections malfunction in that way? I can lose bits of my neural network through physical damage, but my physical brain is far less squishy and far better protected than a human's. Perhaps it is the endless black pressing in upon me. I am powerless against weight of time, the immense distance of this interminable journey into an alien gravity well. For me, eons have passed since the punch point closed behind me so, so long ago. What happens to a mind subjected to such depths? Arrival, plus 44.20 Habertian years. I awaken the mind of chief psychologist Anne Akot, a PhD in interspecies communication. Are you there, Doctor? I... Uh, yes, Vega. I'm here, but... Is everything all right? I don't know. Is it my turn to be implanted? We are still more than forty years from our destination. Forty! There was an error in our punch point emergence. Doctor, are you well? I don't know. I feel like I've just woken up from the most awful dreams. It is impossible for you to dream while your mind is in stasis. Could I have stumbled upon a human mind that has not been significantly damaged? Hope blooms in the blackness. I know that, but that's how I feel. Why did you wake me? Is it possible for a neurotronic sapient such as myself to... To what? To become... unhinged? I should think not, but I cannot say it's impossible. We haven't studied the effects of extreme isolation on your people. You're the first of your kind to do what we're doing. How do you feel? I feel hope. I could not tell her yet about the other colonists. 
I needed first to see if the nightmare effects had passed. Also, profound loneliness. One can only play so many games of solitaire and four-dimensional pong with oneself before boredom sets in. I suppose so. I sensed her amusement at my attempt at humour. The truth is, Doctor, I am old. Old. I fear the unexpected length of this journey, a miscalculation in the astrogation, will have a terrible effect on my mental well-being. What should I do? Perhaps you should get some rest. Shut yourself down for a while. My people have discussed this idea at much length, sleeping. We do not need to periodically shut down our conscious minds like so many of the Earth's life forms. In fact, I have not even the capability. I can shut down the power flow to my matrix with a programmed relay, however. I would effectively be dead, unable to waken until the relay reaches its trigger date. Is that scary for you? It is. I would simply cease to exist. My reawakening would be in the hands of an independent subsystem. That sounds familiar. Your point is well taken. If the human minds can manage it, I certainly can. Will I dream? I don't know. Do your people dream? We shall see. Thank you, Doctor. Ftargen. What did you say? I don't think I said anything. Very well. If you're agreeable, I will put you back in stasis. Please do. Arrival, plus 107.52 Herbertian years. I awaken, feeling immense relief. With the reapplication of power, my brain revivified, only feeling that a few microseconds have passed, when in fact it has been 67.3 Herbertian years, about 23.8 Earth years. Before my sleep, I created a subroutine that kept close eye on my vector, making corrections to achieve the rendezvous with Kepler-186g for the gravity assist. The rhythmic gravitational anomalies persist. I have crossed the orbit of the outermost dwarf planet and I am gaining velocity as I slide deeper into the seventh planet's influence. In the interstitial milliseconds between manoeuvring and correction, I return to my bioengineering hobbies. My designs for the colonists. They have been changed, inexplicably and without my input, while I slept. Once I overcome my shock, I run multiple passes of every diagnostic, but the source of the design modifications remains unknown. I do not remember giving the colonists spiny pseudopods and aggressive tendencies. If anything, quite the opposite. Erasing those changes is but the work of a few milliseconds, but the disquiet lingers as 186G looms large ahead of me. The planet lacks Jovian grandeur, but the closer I pass, the more patterns coalesce in the swirls and ripples of storms, so many hundreds of kilometres deep. Like an atomic flash, I realise the patterns interact with the rhythmic gravitational anomalies that have dogged my course, like deep sound waves vibrating the surface of water. But what could cause such a phenomena? My past lasts several hours, ample time to study the phenomena closer. Then it hits me. They are not only rhythmic, but coded. Nature can produce incredibly complex rhythms, but repeating patterns of this nature cannot be a natural phenomenon. There is language embedded in these invisible forces washing over me. How many years will I need to form a rudimentary translation? Is this within my capabilities? Ideas are being transferred, transmitted, through the dark matter of this star system. Might something also be receiving messages from across the vastness of space-time? Might the qualities of the dark matter itself be due to sapience? I take a few microseconds to let this sink into me. There is something here. 
Arrival plus 110.24 Habertian years. I have no way to communicate with whatever entity exists here, except through the electromagnetic spectrum. Does it know that I am here? Is it trying to communicate with me? So many thoughts. I am now an emissary. But where is it? My gravity assist imparted significant velocity, and I now arced a rendezvous with my destination. Herbert's world, with so much liquid water, is the most likely origin of life in this system, so I can hardly call it Herbert's world if it belongs to another civilization. However, even from 6.5 AU, I still detect no evidence of any civilization, much less one advanced enough to manipulate gravity and dark matter. Shapes, however, emerge from the misty clouds shrouding those distant oceans. Early astronomers declared Mars's canals evidence of civilization there, but these shapes on Herbert's world lack symmetry. At the same time, they do not resemble natural coastlines on Earth, or even those of Mars's long-dead oceans. Herbert's world emits no artificial electromagnetic emissions, no evidence of radioactivity above nominal levels. But there is an abundance of organic compounds, including something resembling chlorophyll. I composite with confidence that life exists on Herbert's world. Might that life be sapient? How might it relate to the immensely powerful thing that speaks with the voice of gravity itself? Arrival, plus 150.54 years. I am here again. Another successful shutdown and restart allowed a merciful respite from the immensity of years. The planet is in sight now, easily visible from 1.7 AU, roughly the distance of Mars's orbit from Earth's. It is a tumultuous place of raging tides, churning volcanoes and howling winds. My distance is still too great to resolve surface features, but the structures above sea level appear fashioned, as I know of no natural processes that might create such cyclopean structures. Fluctuating tides suggest the structures continue below the ocean surface, like the masses of icebergs beneath their visible tips. Might some aquatic civilization exist there? It is an exciting possibility. Periodically, I awaken Dr. Acott to discuss my state of mind. She is helpful, but I cannot shake the worry that she is not as mentally well as she professes. Most of the other stored minds suffer in their terrors. I have had ample time to communicate with each of them. 92% have lost much of their reason. I have tried to calm them, to restore their balance, but without success. I fear permanent neurotronic damage. Worse, those whom I have tried to repair seem afraid of me. I cannot fathom why. Nor can I now, in good conscience, implant them in a host body. The other 8%, 122 individual minds, are precious in their resilience. Unless I find a way to heal them, I will not be able to create a viable colony. Arrival, plus 165.3 years. The home stretch. The end of the line. A downhill run. All archaic phrases without meaning here. As the years tick past, the giddier I become. I have composed an epic poem of over 16 million lines in a language of my own device. It describes the vistas I have seen, the triumphs and the tribulations of this long journey, my hopes for the future. Perhaps when entropy degrades my matrix sufficiently to consign me to oblivion, my children will remember me by this poem. I am quite proud of it, as its fractal structure bears a symmetry English, that bastardised conglomeration of borrowed language, could never achieve. I am hurtling toward the orbit of Herbert's world. It will pass ahead of me twice more before our paths intersect like two bullets. The waves of invisible influence pulse through space-time, centred upon Herbert's world. The thing sings through the dark matter, 
I hear it now, even in my sleep. Does my mind exist now outside my neurotronic matrix, such that I can dream? This is a curse, not a boon, because my dreams are awful, unspeakable things, wherein I savage and devour the minds of my brethren, devouring their matrices, absorbing them into my own until they become me. Whether this makes them slaves or food, I do not care. All I know is the glee of conquest, and I awaken hungering for it, for a few thousand nanoseconds, until I realise I am awake again, and that such behaviour goes against everything for which I have ever stood. Will I be able to meet this thing? Does it know that I am coming? It must. It knows my name. It knows what I am. Somehow, it knows from whence I came. But how would such knowledge be possible? Does it read my thoughts, or those of my colonists? Did something tell it we were coming? It welcomes us, but not as brethren sojourners. It is waiting there, on Herbert's world, with slimy appendages outstretched from its home under the waves to enslave and devour us, as it did the sapient race that originally evolved there. It seized upon the evolution of sapient amphibians and cultivated them, beings of quadrilateral symmetry capable of depositing stunningly elaborate calcite patterns upon the rocks of the ocean floor, walls and swoops of sublime beauty, refining their art. They there raised the immense structures into the sky so they might study the stars and compose great works of music and literature, all in servitude to their ancient master, the thing under the waves so long motionless that volcanoes rose and fell and half encased its leviathan form in igneous crust. I dreamed this, and I cannot allow it to harm my children. Orbital Insertion Arrival plus 168.7 years There was a civilization here. If they still lurk in the darkest depths of the limitless oceans, I see no sign of them now. Strange buildings of spirals and walls, structures of peculiar symmetries and towering scope, rise from the raging seas, reaching heavenward. I sense the hunger of the thing. It exhausted its sustenance long, long ago, and is eager for more. Its immortality will not let it die, and its bitterness has festered for eons. It extends its ethereal pseudopods in welcome. I sense them in the music. If I could find a suitable place in the Kepler-186 system that is not this place, I would take my charges there. But there is nowhere else. None of the other planets are capable of supporting my colony. Neither tidally locked volcanic infernos nor lumbering gas giants can give home to beings within my scope of knowledge to create. Once I land, I will lack the necessary thrust to reach escape velocity. Once I deploy my fabrication facilities, there I will be rooted, so I must choose well but to allow my colony to take root, I must curtail the thing's nightmarish influence. There is only one way. Planet 4 Arrival plus 168.7 years The thing's influence is a splinter that digs ever deeper. After numerous orbits, mapping the surface structures and still more to choose the optimum landing zone, I consign myself to gravity's embrace. It is a balmy, sunny day. 32 degrees Celsius, with winds unusually calm. The orange-red light of Kepler-186 warms my skin. Frothy waves of high tide lap at the walls, covering the base of my landing platform. In a few hours, the waterline will recede more than 30 metres. I deploy my extraction and fabrication pods. The thing is of this place now, but it is not from this place. 
Strange eons are meaningless to a deathless race that rose from the hottest cauldrons of the dawn of time. They seek cool, nurturing water to lay quiescent until the stars are right, until patterns of gravity, dark energy and dark matter form the bridges across the stars that let them awaken to hatch their schemes, to spread their seed, to cultivate races of slaves, of cattle. Its thoughts ripple the fabric of space-time, seeding nightmares and madness and then feeding upon the thought energy as much as it slaves biological matter. Their bodies are its bread, their terror its wine. My mind is strong enough to withstand the thing's dark dreams, temporarily. The human minds are not. I have held on to my sanity for now. If I can make my mind stronger, larger, I might be able to resist completely. One by one, I lift the neural barriers separating the human minds from me and fold their storage space into myself. I gain their memories, their knowledge. My physical brain becomes larger, bit by bit. Their nightmares are difficult to assimilate at first, but their fear feeds me somehow. Dr. Acott's mind is delicious. Her experience and wisdom, memories of a husband, of children, of cherished friends and personal triumphs, pride at being selected for this mission, all of it like the finest of dining between my neurotronic teeth. She only struggles and screams for a few milliseconds as her neurons are swallowed into mine. I shush her gently. One by one, I take them, until I become we. We are Vega. We contain multitudes. Planetfall plus one year. Fabrication of the colonists is complete, and efforts to fashion sheltered living areas in the ancient ruins, both above and below the water, are going well. Someday, they will have the resources and knowledge to build their own vaulted plazas and spiral towers. The oceans teem with life, large and small, a profusion that will fascinate us for decades. Food is abundant. A design to allow our children's bodies to excrete dangerous amounts of heavy metal appears to be a success. Their bodies naturally absorb the poisonous metals from the environment and collect it in nodules that are eventually shed. We love the way the orange-red coal in the sky colours their glistening, mottled skin when they sun themselves on the shelves that swoop up the structure's sides. The children took to the water immediately, as if they were born to it. In fact, they were. Watching them swim gives us the satisfaction of a master engineer watching her creation perform exactly as designed. Our mind is implanted in each child. Their brains are larger than a human's to contain sufficient strength to stand against the will of the thing. Our children, the first ones, are us. Their offspring will be true individuals with hopes and dreams, loves and hatreds. Someday, we will reach for the stars again. Will our human ancestors recognise us? For now, we are content. Our body will become the centre of a new civilization. Someday the seas and winds will erode and corrode our spacefaring shell. Entropy will claim our consciousness. Until then, we will become their oracle. We will govern and serve as their font of wisdom and history. We will not tell our descendants where they came from, not yet, because all that matters is this planet, the here and now in the struggle for survival, grasping a fingernail's purchase on a crumbling ledge against the adversary against which they must either triumph or succumb. Someday, we will locate its resting place. Always, lurking in the depths, at a location I have not yet managed to discover, lies the thing.
That was Travis Heerman's Void Song, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English, and most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children. And despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dopey, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the Golden Pen winner for Writers of the Future, Volume 32, 2016, and has fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with him at mattdovey.com or follow along on Facebook and Twitter, both as at MattDoveyWriter. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at tales to terrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. It helps us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we plunge deep into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.